0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. The sin of us all throughout all of history, throughout all of time, every aspect of our sin and beyond, The full ramifications of sin has been dealt with in a space of some three hours or so when Yeshua said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How is that possible? We don't know. Scripture doesn't explain how in a point of time he can suffer for an eternal endurance of time. How it is that the eternal God of the universe can take upon himself human form and enter into our world is something we cannot unravel. How is it that the timeless one can actually come into time and space? How is it that the one who is infinite can become finite? How is it that the one who is all-powerful can become subjected to death and die in our place? These are things the scripture does not explain It reveals to us, it tells us about, but it doesn't explain it to us. Similarly, the fear of the Lord is like this. It's something that needs to be held in balance because we are ones that do not particularly focus on what it means to fear the Lord. We speak very often about the love of God, and we should. We remember Paul says we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. So where does the notion of the fear of the Lord fit into this equation as well? How do we keep a balance between a sense of personal relationship and intimacy with God and yet a sense of distance that is appropriate as well? The fear of the Lord is what this is about. In Romans 11, when Paul speaks about how it is that the non-Jewish world has come to faith, He says, Behold then the goodness and severity of God. Toward them that fell, severity, but toward you, God's goodness. In other words, what Paul is writing about is the fact that non-Jewish people were grafted in to the olive tree, which is a symbol of God's place of blessing, and have experienced the full blessings that Israel initially was privy to. How did it happen? It happened because many, most of the Jewish people rejected Messiah when he came. And as a result, were Paul's words were cut off from the olive tree. And then what he says about non-Jewish people is that what the Jewish people failed to see, many non-Jewish people did see it and they were grafted in to God's place of blessing. And then Paul says, so take note of both the goodness of God and the severity of God. The key word here is and. Not just the goodness of God and certainly not just the severity of God. We need to be aware of both the goodness and the severity of God. So when we talk about the fear of God, it's relevant to both the goodness and severity of God. The fear of God means to remind us of the fact that despite all of our sin, he has reached down and he has saved us by his grace. That ought to be an exceptionally foreboding reality to us, one that we welcome, but how is it possible that this God who we have offended has reached down and has saved us? There's something about the goodness of God in that, but what did it cost God? It cost his son to endure all that he endured. The severity of God is also recognized therein. So when we, the reason I think we oftentimes have trouble with holding a, a balanced perspective on this is because on the one hand, we have these religious hunches about how God works rather than a reliance on the word of God. We like the idea that God is a loving God. And so we then come to the conclusion that somehow that's all God is, but it's not. And that's something that is like a religious hunch as opposed to the truthfulness of the word of God. Further, today in our modern world, we're bombarded with the idea that all religions are equivalent, all religions are equal, all religions lead to the same place. And yet we realize that Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no question that the scriptures speak of an exceptionalism, that there isn't an equivocal religion to our faith. We, our faith is distinctive from all other faiths in that we believe without Messiah, we are lost. And we don't say that arrogantly or pridefully. We say it with great humility and with great thanksgiving that we are ones who have received the grace of god also sometimes our own sin causes us not to think clearly about things and so therefore we don't realize the true nature and character of god and simply we're simply in the habit of separating god's goodness from his severity so these are reasons why i think that sometimes we fail to recognize the both end but here's some interesting facts about the fear of god the word fear In the Hebrew scriptures, there are some 15 nouns and 10 different verbs that are translated in English with the same word, fear. In the Greek, it's the word phobeo or "phobos," where we get the word phobia from. And in the Septuagint, all the Hebrew words that are translated as fear in English are all translated with the Greek word phobos. And so this idea of fear and the word has to do with being shaken, the idea of being surprised, startled. That's how the word evolved, being surprised, startled, shaken. And then it moved to becoming trembling, to be afraid, and then to have fear. And so, you know, when you think of uh, the scriptures, when we speak about the fear of the Lord, over 300 times the word fear is used in relation to God. Now, here's something just to think about before we delve in this a little further. I started thinking in my mind about certain events in which individuals that encounter the Lord experience the fear of God. So, for example, you remember when the disciples were on the boat with Yeshua. And you remember when he came walking toward them. And they saw him as it were a ghost. And it said when they saw him, they were afraid with trembling. There's another episode where Yeshua not only uh, is in the boat, but then when the storm hits, Yeshua stills the storm. When the storm hits, the disciples, where we read, the disciples were afraid. But when Yeshua stood up and calmed the storm, it said, then they were terrified of the one who was in the boat with them. The idea of the fear of the Lord is experienced by his own disciples who at the very same time were saved by him. So here's the thing. It occurs, the word fear occurs 14 times in the book of Proverbs. And this is what the book of Proverbs tells us. First of all, we read that it is the beginning of wisdom, as Francis Chan mentions. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But it also says in Proverbs that it is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. It also says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. Proverbs Solomon also says the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom and humility comes before honor. Solomon says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Fear the Lord is to guard us from such things. The fear of the Lord adds length to our lives, but the years of the wicked are cut short. It prolongs our life. These are good things, Right. So initially you're thinking, the fear of the Lord, wait a minute, are we really supposed to fear God? Now this is what Solomon is telling us. These are good things when we have an pr- appropriate, healthy fear of God. Solomon says, he who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. He has confidence. He can parent his children well. He can lead his family well. He can lead his business well when there's a fear of God that is present in the hearts of the people. He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress. Solomon says, it can protect one from sin. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Have you ever thought about doing something that you knew was wrong and then said, God wouldn't be happy with me? Or you might have said, I might experience God's disciplinary judgment on my life. That's what Solomon is talking about. Sometimes we have to remember that we cannot trifle with God. And we have to be careful how we live our lives and how we act. Solomon says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one will rest content and untouched by trouble. The fear of God, reverence for God, honor for God a sense of recognizing the severity of God, the disciplinary actions of God. Scripture says that the fear of the Lord results in blessings. Humility and the fear of the Lord will bring wealth and honor and life in all of its fullness. So Francis Chan is right, I think, in drawing our attention to the fact that if we're going to be good stewards of our faith, The first place we need to start is to recognize this notion of the fear of the Lord. There's a distinction, I think, between being afraid of God, although before we were believers we had much to be afraid of, although we didn't realize just how afraid we ought to have been. It's only after the fact we realize, oh my goodness, God has been gracious to me and I had deserved to be treated in such ways that I had every reason to be afraid at the time. And this is really interesting because in Exodus chapter 20, this is a very fascinating passage to me. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. This is when he's receiving the law at Mount Sinai. Do not be afraid. But then he says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Isn't that strange? God is appeared the way he has with thunder and lightning and the clouds and the fire and has told you not to come too far up the mountain. He's done this to test you. Will you obey him? Much like Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing about the fruit that was unique. It was simply God's command, don't eat of this particular fruit. Here, nothing strange about the mountain. This wasn't a different kind of mountain than any other kind of mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. I've had opportunity to climb Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. It's just like all the other mountains and configurations down there. But when God says, don't climb this mountain, don't come up too far today while Moses comes up, now we have to obey him. It's not the mountain, it's God's command. So he says, don't be afraid, but God is doing this. So that the fear of God will be with you. So that you'll be responsive to God, but yet not afraid of him. Respectful, but not afraid of him. Acknowledging just who the infinite God of the universe is, and yet somehow at the same time not being fearful of him. See, that's the balance that's very difficult to unravel. But that's what Moses is telling him. But it's not just Moses. When you look in the Shah in 1 John I think it's like 4.16 or so, I think you have in your passage. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Look at that, four times he uses the word fear. And so here's the question, how does one fear God while at the same time he's expelling all fear from us? That's the difficulty of this idea of the fear of the Lord. So in the John passage, it reveals that fear and love cannot coexist together because perfect love casts out fear. And then he says, where there's a perfect relationship of love, it drives out all fear of God. So there is that recognition that we need to stand in awe of God. But when we have a right relationship with him, we're not afraid of God. In fact, we're drawn to come to him. I think what we see in the garden is that when Adam and Eve hide themselves, they're expressing their afraidness of God, but not their fear of God. So they hide from him. If they had come clean before him, they would have demonstrated their fear of him, but not being afraid of him. (laughs) That's sort of the thing. So a person who stands in a relationship of love to God, we stand in no danger of condemnation or judgment. And yet at the same time, we need to realize who this God is before whom we stand and live our lives. So yet, we are to fear God. And this has clearly stayed in the Brit Shah. So check this out. This is really interesting that I learned doing this. In Luke chapter 1, Miriam, Mary, has the great magnificence, you know, and she gives her blessing and her praise. He, she says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. In Acts 2, speaking of Cornelius, and also in Acts 10, verse 2, it says, he and all his family were devout God-fearing. Now, I understand God-fearers were Gentiles that recognized the Jewish God as the true God. They hadn't fully converted. They were not proselytes. They were God-fearers. But it's interesting that the word to denote these Gentiles who affirmed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not referred to as God-lovers or uh, God-servers, but God-fearers. And so there's this idea that they feared the Lord. In Acts 10.35, it says, He accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right, is what Paul says uh, in one of his messages. In Acts 10, Men of Israel, you Gentiles who worship, which is the word fear, they understood the word fear to mean that it led them to worship him. But he says, listen to me. In Acts 10, brothers, children of Abraham, again, you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, this is a very fascinating passage, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord can lead us to holiness. The fear of the Lord can lead us to a purification of our life. And Paul says, let us press on to perfecting holiness, motivated out of a reverence and awe and fear of God. In Ephesians, he says, submit to one another out of fear of Messiah. The motivation by which we are to submit to one another, love one another, serve one another, is not simply because we're to consider others better than ourselves, Paul does say that in Philippians, but because we fear him. We respect him. And we think about the fact that he has accepted them as his children, as his brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to do no less if we truly fear him. In Colossians, it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and fear for the Lord. So the idea of working well for our employees, for our employers, is to be motivated out of our respect, reverence and love and honor to the Lord. First Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And Paul, speaking about to the Corinthians, he sent Titus to them. He said, In his, that's Titus, one of his fellow workers, his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. And there's an interesting throwback to what we see happening among Israel. This idea of fear and trembling before the Lord. We can do no less for Titus. He's a man of God. He's a servant of the Lord. I can't help when I think about this of a moment years ago when I first became a believer. I was like 17, 18 years old. And the fellow who had been instrumental in leading me to faith was like an associate pastor. He was about four years older than me, so he was in his early 20s. I was a late teenager. And it was his birthday, and they had just put up a a stand-up pool behind the pastor's house, the parsonage, which was attached to the church that we were all fellowshipping in. So we got the bright idea. It's, It's his birthday. Let's get him and throw him in. So here we are gathering around him, and he's fighting us tooth and nail, and then, but we wouldn't resist, and we took him, and we threw him in the pool. One of the elders, just his name sends shivers up my back, Bill Parker from Macon, Georgia. He drove a Harley at the time. He was a construction worker, and he was a guy that I remember he put in the final rivets on the top of the Verrazano Bridge, the, two, the tallest suspension bridge in the world. He couldn't get anyone to go up there and do it. He did it himself. And he comes and he's seeing what we're doing. And he scolded us pretty good. And he said, this man didn't want to be thrown in the pool. What are you guys doing? Don't you remember what the psalm says? Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. This is God's man for this congregation, for this church. And you guys are treating him like he's just somebody else so I think of this, you know, this idea of serving Titus, serving this fellow who had led me to faith out of fear and trembling, knowing that God had placed him in the place that he was. They knew that God sent Titus to him and was encouraged by no less than Paul. We better treat this man well because of those from whom we have received him. And in Philippians, this is an interesting passage too. My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. This oftentimes passed me by, but here now I had to focus on it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We always go to the next verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We always land there. God's working out his good purpose, but look what we're to do. We're to do our part in responding, but out of what kind of motivation? Fear and trembling before the Lord. Our lives are not our own. We are bought with a price. And therefore, we are to be ones who treat our lives as the life of God to us, the gift he's given to us. And now we have to be very careful how we live this life with fear and trembling. Peter said, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Oh, I looked at that, I'm sorry. pressed the wrong button. But then here, fear of God, which is more than simply reverential awe, but certainly it's no less. These are just a couple of things that I learned looking at this. That it was because of Joseph's fear of God that they trust him. It says in Genesis 42, in Exodus, because the midwives feared God, we read this at Passover, because they feared God, they would not kill the firstborn male children, but rather saved their lives. Moses, we're told in Exodus chapter 9, chose leaders, not on the basis of their ability, not on their age, not on their uh, spiritual gifts or longevity. He chose them on the basis of their fear of God. It's kind of an interesting passage too. So the fear of God is a good thing. And here are two things i like us to think about. First of all, it reminds us of his grace. We are to be humble before him. We're not to think too highly of ourselves. We're to stand in awe of God. We are but dust. We are but grass that grows and is gone. We are but flowers that bud and then we are gone. Our life is just a moment in time. But the Lord is the eternal one. We are to be humbled by our smallness. One of the things that Brian and I experienced when we've gone sailing. Now, you have to understand when I was on the East Coast, we owned a 24 foot sailboat together. And we would sail, little by little, as we got better and better at sailing, understanding the wind, the waves, and the boat, we would get a little more risky. And a little more courageous and adventurous. And we'd go a little further out. You know, when we first started, we'd go out into the Chesapeake Bay and we'd come back. You know, we'd go out a little bit more. And when there was a freighter that came by and it created all the wake and so on, We we said, let's go back in now. And then we said, you know, let's try to go across the bay to that marker. And we would be going, and then as the freighters are coming, it's like we're watching everything. We got the radio in case, you know. And then we'd get across, and we'd say, we got to go back. Let's go back, you know, and the winds are in different directions. We would begin to go a little further and a little further. Then I remember when we circumnavigated the Delmarva Peninsula, and we were out in the Atlantic Ocean. And we were far enough out that the land was just a small um, just a small sliver of land on the horizon. Inside, all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> my heart started going, you know, there's, there's nowhere to go. It's just your boat and the water. And it was a frightening thing at first. But it, was, it made us realize just how small we were and how small we are just in regard to the ocean. And then when we'd look on our chart, you know, we'd look at it and we'd say, we're just this little pin spot on this whole chart of the, of the earth. And then we realized the earth is just a little pin spot in how large the universe is. I mean, we're really small. And when we remember God's immensity, we realize that it's by his grace that we are whatever it is that we are. And it will save us from caving into our own sinfulness. In fact, check out, put an asterisk next to Romans 3.18 where Paul talks about, and he quotes from the Psalms, how sinful the world is, both Jews and non-Jews. And he concludes with the phrase, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the principal and primary sin of humanity. Everything else is a manifestation of it. Because we don't fear God, all the other things flow from that. So how does fear of God, who is perfect love, take away our fear? I love this comment. I wrote it out for you because I wanted you to have it. But from an article in Christianity Today, William D. Eisenhower, he wrote this. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions... So he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but he forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. Isn't that kind of cool? Indeed, that is very true. He does sit in judgment. We will stand before him one day and give an account of our lives at the judgment seat of Messiah. But yet he forgives us. And yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the love of the Lord brings that fear to completion. And we experienced the forgiving grace and love of our God. So there are two sides of the fear of the Lord. One side has to do with awe, reverence, respect, obedience. The other side has to do with terror and anticipation of his judgment. And because of what Yeshua has done for us, we are delivered from the fear of judgment and we are given the opportunity to stand in awe of him, to respect him, to honor him, and to obey him. So let's pray. While I'm praying, if the ushers can come forward, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We looked at just a lot of scripture because this week in our life groups, we'll be hearing from Francis Chan and his message on the fear of the Lord. I pray, Father, that we would have a healthy understanding of who you are and who we are in relation to you. We want to be a people, Lord who honor you, who reverence you, who stand in awe of you, who obey you. We want to be motivated, indeed, out of love, but we also have to recognize the healthy distance we have from you as well. And so, Lord, may we live our lives in reverential fear before you. May we seek to obey you and, therefore, be delivered from sinfulness, May we stand in awe of you that your holiness might somehow permeate our own selves and cause us to live lives of meaning and significance and that brings glory to you. Father, it doesn't matter what we do. What matters is that we do this out of reverential love for you. So every week we say, that we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And while we need not cower in fear, we do need to have a healthy relationship with you that recognizes that we stand before you only because of your grace. Father, we are thankful for the gifts that are offered this morning. We are grateful that you have provided us with the resources to give because you love a generous and cheerful giver. So as we give this morning, we give as an expression of our gratitude for what you've already entrusted to us and for the great reward we have when we will stand before you forever. So, Lord, may these gifts be used for the enhancement of your work here at Beth Ariel and to reach out to others in our community and around the globe through our missionaries. So, Father, we bless you, we honor you, and we stand in awe of your greatness and power. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org.